0: So we had a baby last week, um, <clears throat> but this is Pentecost Sunday, and I love Pentecost and could not be kept away. So uh, don't worry, I can take the next couple Sundays off, and spend time with my family, uh, but my mom's here helping out, and uh, I had to come and share with you all this morning a little bit about the Holy Spirit. Um, so I don't know if this is, this is either going to be awesome or terrible, I can't tell because I'm really tired, um, but I'm excited about this. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you. Um, Thank you for this chance to be together and to worship in the midst of uh, everything going on in life, moves and holidays and births. um, It is so great to have a chance just to worship, to be in your presence, to give you thanks for my son. Give you thanks for the Holy Spirit. I pray just as... I did already that he would be at work among us here this morning, that we would not leave without having a greater measure, a greater understanding, a greater joy at who he is, Holy Spirit, and what he is doing for us and the power that we have in his name. Give us this power this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So like I said, um, a couple of years ago our daughter Addie was born and uh our son Owen was born last week and uh this time around my mother was able to come visit us and be here at the time of the birth and watch our kids and so not only was I able to go into the hospital uh, when Owen was born but I was able to stay through the following days with Susie in the hospital in the recovery room um which is wonderful just to have a chance to connect with my son and uh, help her out at midnight and 1 a.m. and 2 a.m. and 3 a.m. And uh, so it turns out that um, the downside of being in the recovery room is that the nurses and the doctors come in and check your blood pressure every four minutes. And uh, so by the time we got the clear to come home, we were pretty excited to come home. And uh, there's this little ritual that the doctors and the nurses have. Uh, it took me a while to catch on to this, but every time somebody comes in the room, doesn't matter if it's 2 in the afternoon or 2 in the morning, they open up the door, turn on the lights, wash their hands, put on some gloves, do whatever they're going to do, take off the gloves, wash their hands, and leave. It's, a, it's this doctor-nurse ritual thing that I've figured out. And uh, so important is this ritual uh, that... On a couple occasions, the nurses would come in and put on gloves and then um, take care of Owen, our son, and take some measurements or do something. Take off their gloves, wash their hands, and say, oh, by the way, I washed my hands right before I came in, so they were clean. And um, as a new father, I certainly appreciate the cleanliness, but that was the moment when I realized, like, this is a ritual for him. There's, There's a couple things going on here. There's the actual cleaning of the hands, but it's almost like a ritual state that uh, the doctors and the nurses have this need to be not just clean, but in a ritual state of cleanliness, that there's, uh, there's clothing that comes with it and gloves and all these sorts of things. And so they're not only clean, they sort of communicate the aura of cleanliness uh, for us and our newborn son, um, which gives me great assurance uh, about protection from diseases and all that kind of stuff. But really, it was better just to go home. Where my mom can give me a hug and pick up my son without gloved hands. That, um, that the ritual state communicates something, but it also it creates a little bit of a barrier. Not one person touched me without gloves on their hands the entire time I was in the hospital. What I want us to see this morning is um, the tension that is happening at this point in the New Testament between the Great Commission, which, by the way, started in Genesis 12 when God told Abraham that he was going to bless him so that he could be a blessing to all the nations and gets repeated in Matthew 28 where Jesus says, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. It gets repeated again in Acts 1. So there's this commission that the believers, the early church, are to go out into all the world and spread the message. And yet there's this, there's this barrier, this hesitation. Um, there's a couple barriers. We're going to take a look at um, both of them. But you can see it in... Um, You can see it in Peter throughout this passage that Peter was personally present at the transfiguration, at the original statement of the Great Commission. Jesus told Peter personally, looked him in the eye, you are my witness to Jerusalem and Judea and to the ends of the earth. And ten chapters later, Peter has yet to evangelize a single person who's not a Jew. And uh, throughout this passage, the Holy Spirit has to say things like, do not hesitate because... Peter probably would have. He said, I've never touched anything unclean. And that, in Peter's mind, is the crux of the problem. That the people out there are unclean. And so there's this tension, this barrier between the need, the command to go reach all people, and the barrier of... Uncleanliness. And uh, so here's what we're going to do. Like I said, this is, um, hang with me here, this is either going to be awesome or terrible, but we are going to take a look at, we're going to interpret this passage in Acts 10 through the lens of Leviticus. Uh, Someday we're going to do a whole sermon series on Leviticus, and you're all going to love it. It's the most fascinating book ever. None of you believe me. um, I will try not to do a whole sermon series this summer, but uh, suffice it to say that you cannot understand Jesus and you cannot understand the Holy Spirit without understanding Leviticus. And so we're going to spend a lot of time with Peter's statement, I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean, uh, and find out where is he living, what's his worldview, where did this come from, and then what does that mean for us today? This is going to get practical eventually, so hang in there. Um, So let's go ahead and start by reading something from Leviticus. Uh, In Leviticus chapter 11, you want to look along with me, it begins this way. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying to them, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, These are the living things that you may eat among all the animals that are on the earth. Whatever parts the hoof and is cloven-footed, and chews the cud among the animals you may eat. It's like a scripture memory verse from Sunday school. I know you all remembered this verse, didn't you? Nevertheless, among those that chew the cud or part the hoof, you shall not eat these. The camel, because it chews the cud but does not part the hoof, is unclean to you. And the rock badger, because it chews the cud but does not part the hoof, is unclean to you. And the hare, because it chews the cud but does not part the hoof, is unclean to you. And the pig, because it parts the hoof and is cloven-hooded but does not chew the cud, is unclean to you. You shall not eat any of their flesh. And you shall not touch their carcass, for they are unclean to you. Uh, And this goes on for quite a few verses, and then we'll wrap up, um, just give you some context. The end of the chapter says this, Every swarming thing that swarms on the ground is detestable. It shall not be eaten. Whatever goes on its belly and whatever goes on all fours or whatever has many feet And swarming things that swarms in the ground you shall not eat, for they are detestable. You shall not make yourselves detestable with any swarming thing that swarms, and you shall not defile yourselves with them and become unclean through them, for I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. You shall not defile yourselves with any swarming thing that crawls on the ground, for I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. you shall therefore be holy as I am holy. Um, so these commandments we call them food laws are repeated uh, frequently in the first five books. so this is um, actually may have been something that Peter memorized as a child was part of their world is the food laws that the Old Testament divides things into clean and unclean, and there's some things you can eat. they clove the hoof and chew the cud. And there's other things that you cannot eat. Uh, So you hear in this passage the words clean, unclean, and holy. So here's your crash course in Leviticus. In Old Testament speak, there are three ritual states. If you're a note taker, you could draw a line across your paper with a little gap in the middle. On the left-hand side, you could write unclean or impure, impure, may you could translate the word either way. Impure, I think, kind of communicates it better in our context. So unclean or impure. In the middle there is clean or pure. And on the right-hand side, there's holy. So there's three states. You can be impure, pure, or holy. And so uh, the passage talks about these different animals being clean or unclean and talks about the Lord being holy. So most Israelites would spend most of their time either pure or impure. And uh, holiness was, the Lord was holy, and if you were a priest or took a Nazarite vow, you could sort of move on up to a state of holiness for a while. Um, These states, this is a little bit tough, I think, for us to wrap our heads around, but people in India totally get this because they have states of cleanliness. These are ritual states. They're not moral states. So, for example, if you have a baby, this is a familiar experience to me, you become unclean, but it's not wrong to have a baby. We're actually commanded to uh, fill the earth and multiply, but you enter a ritual state of unclean. Um, so, um, see if this analogy helps. So, these are ritual states. Uh, they're not moral states, but they have moral implications. Um, so a modern-day example for us might be like marriage. I'm married. It's a ritual state. I inhabit the ritual state of marriedness. But it doesn't mean that I'm any better or worse than anyone else. It doesn't make me more holy or more of a man that I'm married. It's just the state that I'm in. But the state that I'm in has moral consequences. I can't go dating other women anymore. That would be immoral. It's an immoral consequence of the state that I'm in. Does that make sense? Um, and with that comes, um, just, just like in the Old Testament, there would be rituals. You'd have certain types of clothing, you know, certain rituals you go through. So we go through a ritual to enter into the state of marriage, and we have a certain set of clothing that you put on to enter that state, and there's certain symbols that indicate the state that I'm in. They're not moral states, but it's a, it's a ritual state that has moral consequences. Um, There's various things that can move you between these ritual states. Uh, You can go up or down. So if you are impure or unclean, you could offer sacrifices uh, or wash your clothes, and you could be transferred to a state of purity. Uh, Or if you're a priest, you could be pure, and you could offer sacrifices and uh, change your garments and enter in the temple and move from a state of purity to holiness. And likewise, there's things that will move you down in the states. If you um, eat something that's unclean or touch a dead body, you move down from pure to impure or from holy to pure. Um, the, um, the, the reasoning behind these different things is not entirely clear, uh, although um, it's likely that what is happening is that everything is being evaluated in reference to a standard, This is a common way of thinking in the ancient world. And for the Israelites, who is the standard? The Lord God of heaven and earth. And so um, how exactly this plays out is a bunch of sermons that we won't go into. But suffice it to say, the more like the Lord something is, the more holy it is. And the less like the Lord something is, the the more unclean it is. So that's why the most unclean thing you can have is a dead body. Because the Lord has all... He's the giver of life. He's the essence of life. And so a dead body is very different from the Lord. And so it's, it's in a different ritual state. So why on earth? Why? <laughs> why on earth is this stuff in the Bible? Well, the passages, I think, in Leviticus make clear the intent is the, intent is the heart. Um. How does the chapter end? For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves therefore and be holy. For I am holy. So the fact that um, the food laws change in the New Testament, which we're about to talk about, communicate that there's not something intrinsically bad about rabbits uh, or pigs, but the Lord is using these ritual states to communicate something to the heart. And it says right here what it's communicating is holiness. Holiness and set apartness so if you have to go through your day constantly sorting things into clean unclean clean unclean holy clean unclean it's a continual reminder it it affects every part of your life and it's a reminder that the lord is present in every part of life and he is holy and so we should be holy Does that make sense so I go through my life, and everywhere I go, my wedding ring is with me. And it doesn't make me a better person, but the fact that, that my ritual state of marriedness communicates to me that I need to um, obey the moral commands that come with that state, that I need to put my wife before myself. Um, it's, the, the state is designed to teach me something in my heart. That Make sense? So these ritual states in the Old Testament are designed for the same reason, to train the Israelites in their heart. That's why the prophets end up speaking of things that, you know, circumcise your, your heart. That the, um, the rituals were supposed to remind the Israelites the need for holiness, the need to be connected with the Lord, to put him first. And it really was designed to help them with what we struggle with, separating things between sacred and secular that it's not sort of something you go to the temple and that's your holy time and then you sort of head out into the world and do whatever, that, that these food laws permeate all of your life and remind you of the Lord's presence in every place. They're reminded uh, for the need of holiness, the unity of the people of Israel, the respect for proper boundaries, uh, reverence for life. So much of them have to do with blood and protection of life, proper treatment of animals. Um, another verse kind of communicates their positive intent is in Leviticus 20. I'll read 20:25 20, through 26. You shall therefore separate the clean beast from the unclean and the unclean bird from the clean. You shall not make yourselves detestable by beast or by bird or anything with which the ground crawls which I have set apart for you to hold unclean. You shall be holy to me for the Lord for I the Lord am holy and have separated you from the peoples, that you should be mine. The Lord is giving these people rituals, just like we have rituals in our time, rituals like communion and baptism, to remind us of the Lord's holiness and our closeness to him. Uh, or like uh, we have rituals like praying before a meal. Why, if Perhaps many of you guys pray before you eat. Why do you pray before you eat? Perhaps to remind you that the Lord is the provider, right? He's given you your food. And so your ritual of praying doesn't sort of make you any more or less holy, but it's there to teach your heart, to remember that the Lord is in all of life and to remind you who he is and what his character is. So what's the problem? Well, there's a couple problems. The first one is the barrier that these rules create between the Israelites and the rest of the world. Uh, Specifically because if you're pure or clean and you touch something that's unclean, what happens? You become unclean. So it's not the cleanliness which is contagious. It's the uncleanliness. And we see Israel as a nation have a long-standing habit of coming in contact with other peoples, other ways of thinking and doing and living, and what happens? They become unclean. They sort of, instead of remembering the Lord, they sort of adopt more and more unhealthy, untrue ways of living. And so the great weakness in this system is, um, is that uncleanliness is contagious, and so you sort of have to protect yourself from the uncleanliness Around you, it creates a barrier, just like um, the doctors with their gloves, that they're there to to care for me, to care for my baby, and yet they're not going to get too close because it's important to maintain their state of ritual cleanliness. What is needed? is an experience of God's presence. Because again, that's what these rules are about, God's character and presence. What's needed is an experience of God's presence that is so powerful that the flow is reversed so that the impure becomes sanctified by the pure. That is sort of the great gnawing crisis of the Old Testament law. So hold on to that thought for a minute. What we need is an experience of God's presence so powerful that it works the other way, that what is pure can make what is unpure clean. Well, there's a second problem in this passage. I wish I could only deal with one of them, um, but they're intertwined. If I only dealt with one, um, you, you, you would be left with questions. So the first problem is the barrier created by the food laws. The second is legalism. And legalism is when we... Take God's laws, and we add our own laws, an extra layer of laws, sort of like, well, if we know that this is wrong, then let's create another rule out here, and that way we will never touch what's really wrong, and we've got extra rules. The other thing that can happen in legalism is when you begin obeying rules for the sake of the rules, and you lose sight of the thing that the rules were designed to teach to your heart. And usually, when you become legalistic, both of those things happen at the same time that you have the rules and you add on your own rules and layers of rules upon rules and you begin to focus more on the rules than the heart itself. And that is what has happened in this passage. Peter, um, hospitable and gracious as ever, arrives at the house of Cornelius and uh, in verse 28 says this heartwarming and welcoming statement you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jews to associate with or visit anyone of any other nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then, why did you send for me? What a, what, what a great opening statement. Peter's lucky that due to the work of the Holy Spirit, Cornelius just didn't kick him out of his house at that moment. You, you, you could not possibly get more offensive you yourselves know it's not lawful for me to even eat with you. The point here, under the heading of legalism, is that actually is not true. You will not, you will not find a place in the Old Testament where it says Gentiles are unclean, or that you should not eat with them. Here's what happened: that um, we know that uh, obeying the food laws is important. And so you got to pay attention to what you eat and how it's prepared. And, but if you hang around with someone, if you hang around with a Jewish person, and you suspect that they're not entirely on top of the food laws, you never know what's happening in their kitchen, right? And so it just might happen that they would let the milk touch the calf, and, and who knows, and then it's unclean. And so if you suspect that a Jewish person is not on top of the food laws, it's just better to not eat with them. It's not a biblical rule. It's just, it's just a good idea. If you're trying to maintain a state of purity, let's just, let's just stay away from anything that might risk that. And, uh, and so if you should avoid Jews who aren't really serious about this, you should really avoid Gentiles. Because who knows what happens in their house? Right? They do not know about the food laws, these crazy uncircumcised people. And so if you go in there, who knows what you might eat or what it might have touched. And so it's just, it's just don't go there. Don't go there. You, this is exactly how the reasoning worked out. You can read it in the writing of the Pharisees and the Jews of the day. And so they added on extra rules to the food laws saying, you know what, we've got to maintain our purity. And so we'll just avoid anyone that makes us uncomfortable. And so Peter here has Without realizing it, added on a, a law that's not in the Bible, and uh, and is shaming this man who's welcomed him to his house. It's um, it's an addition to the law. It's also a poor view of what the food laws were there for in the first place. This is why I wanted to explain all that. Right? What are the food laws there for? To remind you about God's holiness. And our special status as his people. And so to begin to approach the laws as a a means to themselves and to begin treating them as if they were a moral state, and somehow if I could avoid anyone who is ever unclean, then probably God will like me more. And in fact, we see in the New Testament the Pharisees began observing not just the food laws for the Israelites, they began observing the food food laws for the priests. Do you remember the priests had to move from a state of cleanliness to holiness to enter the temple? So the Pharisees are like, look, if cleanliness is good, holiness is probably better. If it's good for the priests, it's probably good for all of us. We should all do it. And so they began observing rules that were never intended to them, rules to kind of raise themselves into a state of holiness, supposing that maybe was better in God's sight, and kind of forcing that on other people, which, again, created extra layers of barriers. And Peter, having fully taken in this legalism, resists. At every step, we're 10 chapters into Acts. He has yet to reach out to a Gentile person. Um, the Holy Spirit has to tell him to go without hesitation because he would have hesitated. He gets to Cornelius' house, and his first statement is, You know that I really shouldn't be here. And the final thing you should know about Peter is, He's entirely hypocritical. Because where is He staying when this story begins? He's staying at the house of a tanner, someone who deals with dead bodies of animals and unclean animals, and all over the house are drying skins and drying animal guts. The Israelites regarded tanners, those who sort of tan leather cow hides, as unclean. And Peter's statement that I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean is um, patently untrue. It's the Holy Spirit is at work here, breaking down um, the barriers of the Old Covenant, but also the barriers that we add on top of it. So what's happening in this passage? What is the solution? The first thing that we need to know uh, is that Christ's atonement, which by this point in the story has already happened, is so complete that there becomes no more need for the ritual states. Because when you're in a state of uncleanliness, what do you do? You offer a sacrifice. You offer something shed on your behalf to restore you to a state of purity and cleanliness in God's sight. And God's own Son, having been offered as a sacrifice, no more need for sacrifices could ever be found. This is part of Peter's own preaching. If you look in verse 43, The conclusion of his very short sermon. To him, to Jesus, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives the forgiveness of sins through his name. That's Peter's own message. Everyone who believes in the name of Jesus receives his ritual state permanently. And so from this moment on, the the food laws, all the laws of clean and unclean come to an end and become replaced with rituals that remind us of the state of cleanliness that we already have. That's part of what's so remarkable from a Jewish perspective about communion and baptism. And we come, every time we take communion, we are partaking of the Lord's body. From an Old Testament perspective, this is the Holy of Holies. And back in the day, before Jesus rose from the dead and the coming of the Holy Spirit, no one entered the Holy of Holies except the high priest, having reached a state of ritual holiness once a year. And even then, just in case he maybe didn't actually reach that state, they put a little bell and a rope on his leg in case he died, and they had to drag him out of the Holy of Holies in the temple. Well, now, cleanliness having been supplied to everyone who believes in Jesus' name, you are in a state of Not just purity, but holiness. So you can enter into and actually touch and handle what in the Old Testament only resided in the Holy of Holies safely. That you, in a sense, have received the status that the high priest had, and he only one day a year. Christ was um, completely filled with the Holy Spirit. So he was uh, without sin, offered an atonement for our sacrifices, and in his life was filled with the Holy Spirit, which empowered him for his ministry. This, again, is part of Peter's own preaching. Verse 38, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. And he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. So that's um, it's kind of a strange way to put it, but in a sense that's the secret to Jesus' success not just that he's God, but he's anointed with the power of the Holy Spirit. That was what enabled Jesus to live without sin and to enter the dark places of the world and to enter and touch that which is unclean and make it clean. Remember, that that's the experience that's needed in the Old Testament. Someone who has had such a profound and real and abiding experience of the power of God's presence that they are not... Contaminable, That the clean can reach out and touch the unclean. And the unclean becomes clean. That's what's happening throughout the Gospels. When um, Jesus eats with tax collectors and sinners. This is why the Pharisees say, Don't do it! You might become unclean. And Jesus says, This is not a problem for me. I'm so clean, I can make them clean. I can reach my hand out and heal your body. I can spit on you and it would fix your problems. And so having this power of the Holy Spirit in him. The power of God's presence in very life and ascending into heaven and sending down that Holy Spirit upon us, he is able to, again, I'm speaking in Leviticus terms, he's able to share his ritual state with us. So, um, this is why Jesus has to live the life he does, sacrifice, rise into heaven, And send down the Holy Spirit. That he reigns with God above. He sent down the Holy Spirit. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. And now the Holy Spirit communicates the status that Jesus had to you. It's like jumper cables. The Jesus engine is running. And if we connect jumper cables from that thing to your heart, it has so much power that the state of holiness will flow from his engine into your engine and start yours up and you too now become holy which is the second solution to the problem the first is that christ's atonement is so complete there's no more need for the ritual states the second is the holy spirit comes with power to make you not just pure but holy and for that holiness to spread to others that what jesus had the power to do is now transferred to you In Hebrews 9, speaking, again, of the Holy of Holies in the temple, it says this, By this the Holy Spirit indicated that the way into the holy place is not yet opened, as long as the first section is still standing. He's talking about what I was talking about just a minute ago, the temple and the Holy of Holies separated off where only the holy could go. And a few verses later he says this, How much more will the blood of Christ, through the eternal Spirit, offered himself without blemish to God, purify your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So what happens on the day of Pentecost, which is what we're celebrating today, the Holy Spirit comes down from Jesus to his church and gives you this status, this power of holiness, that holiness is purity plus power for the purity to flow out from you. This is why uh, Paul can say in 1 Corinthians 7, he's talking about marriage. And if you're a believer and you're married to an unbeliever, and he has some things to say about that. And he says, as long as your children are connected to you, they are what? They're holy. Not even pure, but holy. That you, as a believer, have given birth to children, and they enter the world having received your status of holiness. The Holy Spirit becomes within us a sanctifying presence that we mediate to the nations. One of my professors in seminary defined holiness this way, in New Testament terms, holiness is fitness graciously bestowed to experience and extend God's life-giving presence together with the ethical response appropriate to experiencing that presence and participating in the mission of its extension. Here's what that means. Holiness is having what Jesus had, such a powerful experience of God's presence that you are uh, protected and empowered by the Holy Spirit in such a way that it flows out from you to other people and in such a way that, remember, the food laws were designed to do what? Shape your heart. And so the... Things that you, the behaviors you would expect to see from a state of holiness begin to erupt in your life. That because of the power and the working of the Holy Spirit, you begin to do holiness more and more. That uh, all of us, as long as we're alive, will struggle with sin, but having received the power of the Holy Spirit, um, that th- 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 it gets less and less. That the Holy Spirit begins to bear fruits in you. So here's the first example we see of this. Uh, Acts 3, so Acts 2 is Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes down, tongues of fire, um, tongues in other languages, people preaching the word, thousands of people are converted, and then this is the next chapter, Acts 3. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, and a man, lame from birth, do you think he's clean or unclean? He's unclean. He does not attain to the standard. So there's what you would normally expect in a human body. This man's lame. That's unclean. He's in a state of uncleanliness. An unclean man, lame from birth, was being carried, and they laid and there they laid him daily at the gate of the temple that is called the Beautiful Gate to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said... Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise and walk. And he took him by the right hand, and Peter became unclean. And they both had to go offer sacrifices. No, that's not what happens. Peter takes him by the right hand and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. This is the first thing that happens after the Pentecost. That Peter and John, being now filled with the Holy Spirit, can stroll about the city, come in contact with that which is unclean, reach out and touch it, and the cleanliness now flows In the other direction, that the man who is unclean has now become clean and, unsurprisingly, experiences the heart manifestation of what you'd expect from cleanliness. He walks into the temple and worships the Lord. So having received the Holy Spirit, all believers receive this kind of power and holiness from the Holy Spirit. This is why um, it becomes dangerous to mistreat the things of the holy spirit it says uh, in corinthians that some who take communion wrongly have died paul has things to say about the way we treat our bodies with other people because we're a temple of the holy spirit did you receive this holy spirit power and just as it was you had to be careful with the holy spirit in the old testament so now we have to be careful with our own bodies because it is the presence and power of holiness and the presence of the holy spirit we see in this passage in Acts 10, which is, by the way, repeated almost verbatim in Acts 11 and again in Acts 15. The story of Peter reaching out to Cornelius, having been confused by his own theology, begins to understand um, seeing the gift of the Holy Spirit poured out on them. Um, what he says in verse 28 um, God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. That um, all in all places who call upon the name of the Lord can receive the status of cleanliness. And that we as believers no longer have to be afraid of that which is unclean, but can walk out with the power of the Holy Spirit. So how does this um, become practical in our lives? Three things. One, you should in your life avoid Legalism, by which I mean making judgments about any others, including other Christians, about anything that is not specified in God's word. If the word doesn't say the kind of music we should listen to, you should not care. If other people listen to music that you don't like or wear earrings, men, it is not sinful to wear an earring. It's not a law in the Bible. should avoid making judgments about others' preferences that aren't clearly articulated in Scripture. There's so many uh, barriers and uh, chasms built, especially Christians, Christian to Christian between ministry and ministry. We make judgments about things that are not specified in Scripture. It's very important for us to know what God has said and what He's not said in His Scripture. And if things are unclear, let it be unclear. One of my best friends, Todd Morikawa, the pastor at um, Kailua Baptist Church, he thinks differently about baptism than I do. It's Look, it's unclear in Scripture. He's clean, I'm clean, we can be friends. It's not necessary for us to get in a fight about this. Second, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid of contamination. That in the Old Testament... We had to circle the wagons and invite the world to come in here, lest we go out there and become uncontaminated, become contaminated. And, and we live oftentimes like that's the case, don't we? But that is not the way things work in the New Testament. We are sent out from Jerusalem to Samaria to the ends of the earth, taking our Holy Spirit holiness with us. It is not necessary for you to live in fear about the things that may contaminate you or affect you or your mindset, but to fearlessly walk out into the world in the power of the Holy Spirit, knowing that he can protect you. Something is different now since the coming of the Holy Spirit. Look, I'm not saying you don't need to be wise and discerning all that kind of stuff. What I'm saying is you don't need to be afraid. It is okay to have friends who are not Christians. You should have friends. Who are not Christians. You should have friends who think very different things from you, and you should be relaxed and confident entering the relationship, knowing that Holy Spirit is with you, and He can impart some of your life to them. And finally, we should all, with great energy, go forth to cross all the barriers that we possibly can. In fact, the only barrier that it talks about in the New Testament is the barrier that we're supposed to set up between us and other Christians who say they're Christians and clearly don't live that way. There is no category for judging unbelievers or Gentiles in the New Testament. It actually may help us to remember that from the perspective of Jewish law and Leviticus, you all are unclean. We are the ones who are on the outside. We are the ones who've been graciously brought in. And having experienced that and knowing that, this should empower us to build relationships with anyone and everyone around us. Who is it in your life that is just a little too uncomfortable? A little bit too unclean? Unkempt? And what would it be like for you to enter that relationship in freedom? And confidence, knowing that the Holy Spirit is with you and that their uncleanliness and disobedience and whatever pornography or crazy thing they're doing is not your problem, that's Jesus' problem, and you can enter in and embrace them as Jesus embraced you. I went to seminary in St. Louis, lived there for four years. Uh, This church, if you didn't know, is part of the Presbyterian Church in America. There are 27 PCA churches in St. Louis. Two of them are in the city. Two of them are in the city. That we are a people of separation and suburbs and avoiding that which is dangerous and unfamiliar and unclean from our perspective. One of the friends I had in seminary intentionally moved into the inner, inner city. And partnered with one of the two PCA churches there and built friendships on the street. He said, look, the Bible says that you're supposed to respect God-given authority. As far as I can tell, the authority on my street is the bloods. That's the authority on my street. And so he went straight away, found the gang members at the corner and said, I would like to speak with your leader. Met with the local gang boss and asked his permission to do ministry in his neighborhood. And received it. And being... um, The guy had two small children, by the way. And having been filled and protected by the power of the Holy Spirit, proceeded to do his ministry in this neighborhood. And within a couple months, you know what happened? Gang boss calls him up. My friend's a little bit nervous. Gang boss says, I need you in the street corner in 10 minutes. I have something important. It's a little stressful. So my friend goes down to the street corner car pulls up, gang boss is in there, another guy's in the car, gang boss gets out, looks at the guy in the car and says, this brother is a holy man listen to what he says looks at my friend and says, tell him about Jesus so he sits down in the car the door closes, they circle around some blocks for a while, my friend tells him the gospel message the gang boss had experienced the life-giving presence of the Holy Spirit and began to want that for people around him. Didn't know what it was, didn't have a name for it, just knows that what this man has, we want. A while later, my friend's car got broken into. He got a call about two hours later. I know who broke into your car. I want to kill him for you. No, don't do that. We don't all have to move into the inner city. The point is that each of us has people in our life that we are not comfortable with right where you are right now. And will you trust the power of the Holy Spirit to drag you along just like he did with Peter and give you opportunities to share the good news of the holiness of Jesus Christ and the life that's found in his name. Let's pray.